why do you care about you know getting your reputation upheld and he has them he has them certify and sign a document which we still have by the way and he says because i'm going to publish something in response to john murphy of polo county who said i denied my testimony and he says you know if he did not understand me then let him understand me now <laughs> i have never denied my testimony i saw what i saw you know and he goes on in that way to me that's powerful but but even more powerful is is uh, when he dies, there's a there's a grave marker on his on his grave in Richmond, Missouri. It's a pillar of stone about I don't know three feet tall or something like that. And on top of it are carved two books, clearly meant to be the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And on the side of the pillar, it says, "The record of the Jews and the record of the Nephites are one. Truth is eternal." Still getting tons of great emails and such about our 600th episode. Thank you for everyone who sent something along to contact at theculturalhall.com. That's not what this episode is about. I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who's found their way to The Cultural Hall. And if this is your first time listening to The Cultural Hall, I want you to know that this is a uh, safe space, right? We can put the uh, McGruff thing in the window. Know that your, uh, your faith and all those things are safe here. Is that a McGruff house? Am I remembering rightly? Yeah. Uh, so you can uh, you can rest at ease. Know that maybe there are some things that you go, huh, I didn't know that. Or maybe there are some things that you go, oh, I need to think about that a little bit more. But that we are not trying to tear anyone down or damage anything. If anything, we're just trying to have great conversations about things that we find fascinating. We produce uh, several episodes a week and hope that you will subscribe wherever you get your shows available in podcast form. And that way you never miss a single episode. Like, you you wouldn't want to miss this episode. Let's get to it. It is time for another episode of The Cultural Hall. And it's very exciting. This is the first episode that will be recorded in my brand new studio. Uh, Daniel, that is Daniel Peterson, my guest for this episode, was patient enough as we didn't start on time because the walls behind me were getting painted literally moments before uh, this episode started recording. Uh, I appreciate your patience, Daniel, and thank you for being here. Happy to be here. Now, people hear the name Daniel Peterson, and I know we're going to talk about your latest project, uh, a considerable amount about um, the witnesses, that is the witnesses of the Book of Mormon, and why you're so darn passionate about it, and what we can learn from those witnesses. But before we even go there, uh, people would know you from your writings online, uh, depending on how long they've been following, you know, stuff online, they, they might know a whole lot more than maybe even I would know about you. When you introduce yourself to people and say, that, hey, this is kind of the stuff I'm passionate about, how do you couch it? You know, I thought you were going to say when people hear the name of Daniel Peterson, you know, dogs howl and, and thunder <laughs> crashes, you know, but, <laughs> well, this is how I'd introduce myself, I suppose. Um, I was for years and years and years a professor of Islamic studies and Arabic at BYU, uh, just retired July 1st, 2021. And uh, so, um, so that's, that's that. That's what I did for my day job is to teach Arabic and Middle Eastern studies and, and so on and so forth. But I've also been involved in uh, defense of the church, I suppose, and advocating Latter-day Saint beliefs, advocating the cause of the restoration. So I was heavily involved with an organization called Farms, the old foundation for ancient research in Mormon studies, which became the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at BYU. Um, and uh, since 2012, I've been in charge of something. I mean, in charge of it. Heck, you know, it's hurting cats. But, <laughs> but um, I've been the president, the nominal leader of a group called uh, the Interpretive Foundation, which uh, publishes an online journal um, every week. We've done it every week now. It'll be ten years straight without a single exception. It amazes me. I mean, congratulations, seriously. That yeah. as someone who can't seem to make an episode every week. Congratulations that you're able to, to do that every week. Yeah, it stuns me. I mean, we set out in August of 2012 to, uh, we thought, well, we'll publish an article and then we'll publish a couple more, one a week, with the idea of kind of making a splash. And we've done at least one a week, sometimes two, sometimes three articles a week in our journal, every single week without a single exception since then. And we don't pay. This is what amazes me. I, you know, I, I look there and I think, surely they're going to stop sending in articles. They don't. There's always a queue. And uh, and so we do conferences, we've published books, and, and we've done now some movies. 
um, which is something I never envisioned myself doing. I, you know, I never saw myself as a future Hollywood mogul. Now I'm thinking I need to get, you know, a Lamborghini and some bling. Uh, but but uh, except I didn't put anything in the contract get, about getting paid for this. So I'm not ah, sure how I afford it, but it's too know, late. Anyway. It's too yeah. late now. You move forward. Is there a, a guiding principle or like, a, and I don't want to get into this. This feels awfully Stephen R. Covey-ish, but like a, a mission statement for um, for the organization? Yeah, we don't have a formal one. I mean, we do, but I don't know what it is. Sure. No one ever does. It was a great weekend experience that we did where we sat down, really got to know each other, put out a mission statement that none of us ever read again. But exactly. But like, uh, you know, the 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 uh, dialogue, uh, the dialogue of why can't I think of what that's called that the University of Illinois Press does. The Dialogue of Mormon Thought, the Journal of... Oh, yeah, Dialogue of Journal of Mormon Thought. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, that that very much has a feel, and you sort of know what you'll get from that. How would you describe that for this organization? I I suppose if you were to describe it, we we see ourselves as commending and defending the faith, but it's not always about that. Sometimes it's just simply trying to take a deeper look at, at a passage in Scripture, at some of our doctrines and so on. But it's done from an explicitly faithful perspective. We really are believers. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so th- there's going to be no secret about that. We don't hide it. And people can take that into account. You know, if they're skeptical, they say, well, these are people who are committed to the truth of the of the church and the restoration of Joseph Smith's claims. And that's certainly true. That said, we try to do it up to a high level of scholarship, integrity, and so on. Um, our journal is peer-reviewed. And we reject things. I got an agonized call just last night from somebody that I know slightly who was really upset because his article was just rejected. Well, I mean, I don't know whether it should have been or not because we have an independent peer review process, deliberately so, so that, you know, these people make their own decisions. And on the whole, I respect them. If they reject something, well, that's the decision that was made. Uh, And I don't try to influence them one way or the other. So so we're trying to do it in an academically honest way. But but you're not going to find attacks on the church or its policies or on the brethren there. You're not going to find uh, skeptical articles about the origins of the Book of Mormon. Now, that said, uh, a lot of the articles argue for things that, <clears throat> that you can believe or not believe as a, as a member of the church. I mean, uh, this is not one that's come up recently, but for example, where's the, uh, where's the River Sidon? You, know, mm-hmm. you can believe in the Book of Mormon and its history, and that doesn't dictate any particular location for the river side. And that just has to be argued out on, on the basis of reading the text carefully and looking at evidence. So there's a lot of room, even within the faithful perspective for, you know, for what positions you'll take. Um, what do we think the scripture means? Well, different people might disagree. Uh, so, um, so it's a, it's a group of faithful Latter-day Saint scholars and not only, well, not only professional scholars, people want to know, well, is it only for PhDs? No, um, I don't really care whether a person has a PhD or not. Um, I care whether the uh, the argument is well made with good evidence and good reasoning. Hmm. And it doesn't matter to me at all what kind of academic background I've been. I've been around academics long enough to know that people with PhDs can make really stupid arguments <laughs> and adopt stupid positions. Yeah. yeah, and people without them can come to really sound conclusions based on good reasoning. So. Yeah. Let, let me ask you, as I hear you speak, it sounds like you have a bit of an accent, maybe. Where does that come from? You know, that's a mystery. People have asked me about that. I remember a linguist at BYU who wanted to know if I was from Boston or, you know, somewhere yeah, like it's, that. Uh, it definitely sounds a little East Coast-ish to me. Yeah, I'm not. I'm from Los Angeles. Okay. Um, now, I don't know why it happened. I One speculation I've had for myself is that... Um, is that I served a German-speaking mission. One of the things that gives um, gives Americans away when they're speaking German is our, our American R, mm-hmm. you know. And so I took great pride. I was vain about <laughs> uh, about getting my accent right to the point where, at one point, at least, I could masquerade as a German. Um, which, since I was in Switzerland, I discovered late uh, wasn't always a good idea. Yeah, they no, thought I was no. a Nazi, you know. <laughs> so, but uh, but I lost my R. And I never quite got it back. I think maybe that's the reason. Um, I don't know. I, it's how, not a speech impediment, I don't think. <laughs> how long ago was it that you served in Germany? Oh, it was a long time ago. I'm really, really old. Oh, I stop, stop. In, in German-speaking Switzerland from 72 to 74. Wow. So, so was, the temple, was the temple there at that time? 
Yes, it was uh, dedicated in 1955. Okay. So, so, so pretty around. unique to be able to to be able to serve foreign and then still be able to have that as a resource for you for sure. Oh yeah. Well, no, we didn't actually get to go to the temple during my mission. I understand no. that's changed, but um, but it um, uh, we got to go at the end of the mission, but but not prior to that. So, I mean, I I spent several months in the in the war that met right on the grounds of the temple, but I didn't get to go in. You know what fascinates me too, as we sort of chat, uh, knowing the the trajectory that your life has taken and sort of yeah. where your interests are and where you were raised. What does uh, a a white Latter Day Saint from Los Angeles have any business studying Middle East and Islamic uh, cultures and and traditions and, and you know history and and then teaching that? Like how do you, how do you go from German speaking Switzerland to Islamic and, and Middle Eastern studies at Brigham Young University? Well, there actually is a connection in an odd sort of way. Um, and uh, I came to BYU as an undergraduate um, with the idea of majoring in mathematics. I wanted to be, I wanted to be Albert Einstein, right? I had a full size, <laughs> life size picture of Albert Einstein on my wall in my dorm room. Um, and uh, that was my goal. But I soon learned that, A, I didn't think I was all that good at it. I was okay, but not that great. And it wasn't really my consuming passion. Um, hmm. What interested me was I'd come under the spell of Hugh Nibley, a name that I think a lot of people have still yeah. heard. And, uh, you know, I was fascinated with ancient history. And at one point, he gave a speech um, when I was there as an undergraduate, a freshman, I think, saying, whatever you're doing, drop it and study Arabic. And he listed several reasons. Now, you know, I think he was going through one of his Arabic phases. They lasted only a little while, but they, they'd come now and again. So, well, I listened and I took it seriously. So I did a little bit of Arabic before I went. And then when I was called on my mission, uh, I was called to the Switzerland Zurich mission, which no longer exists. I, I guess I did such a good job. that yeah, You finished it. Mini mission over. Yeah. Everything done. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, mission accomplished. So, um, uh, but that was that was the call that I got. But when I was set apart by my state president, he said, well, have a good time in Beirut. And I said, excuse me, Beirut, you know, Lebanon. And he said, well, yeah. And he showed me his papers, which were different from mine. And they put me in Switzerland, parenthesis, Beirut, which isn't as crazy as it sounds, because Switzerland was a neutral country, is still a neutral country. And so the church ran a lot of its operations out of Switzerland for Eastern Europe, everything in Africa, north of the Congo, everything in the Middle East over to Afghanistan, including Afghanistan. And because um, you know, it was coming out of a neutral place. And so hmm. my mission president every three months had to make a circuit of the entire mission, which was amazing. I mean, it's much of the Eastern hemisphere. Wow. Um, and uh, so it wasn't as crazy as it sounded. And I didn't know until I got to Switzerland where I was going to spend the next two years of my life. I remember asking the mission president. So there are two sets of papers on me. Where am I going? <laughs> and we had a district of missionaries in Beirut. Wow. And he said, no, no, you're staying in Switzerland, which, uh, which, you know, Switzerland is gorgeous. I love Switzerland. It's like tracting in a national park and just yeah. about as effective. Yeah. As tracting yeah. in a national yeah. park. But, but uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I began to think, oh, gee, Beirut, that would have been so exotic, you know? <laughs> um, and I guess I was called because I showed an interest in Arabic before my mission. So um, and there was always the possibility I'd be sent. And one of my best friends was sent to Beirut, mm. but I never was. But when I got back, I got more serious about it. And, uh, you know, I used to joke that, uh, in Switzerland, I, I was thinking to myself, it was almost as if the grass would be greener in Beirut, but that's funny because there's almost no grass in Beirut. <laughs> Switzerland is really green. Uh, but, uh, but it, you know, it created an interest in me and I thought, um, I thought, man, there are so many things that need to be done about the Islamic world. And there were no Latter-day Saints looking at it then that I knew of. <laughs> yeah, you're the OG. You're one of the OGs. Yeah. yeah. So I thought, you know, maybe this is something that I should do. So I did it. Yeah. And, well, the, and the coolest part about that is if you really boil down that story, you're like, yeah, Hugh Nibley told me I should study Arabic. So I did. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of true. It was a huge influence on me for good or bad. <laughs> you know, something that you brought up and something that has been a lot in culture right now, something that I've been sort of focused, this is uh, sort of runs parallel with what you do. Um, but it's something that that I would really respect your opinion on. Uh, yeah. I think growing up there, 
whenever there was something that was either uncomfortable or that we didn't know about, and you know, I'm, I'm 40 something, um, we would label it anti that that's anti-Mormon something. Right. And, uh, in the last couple of years, um, and I think that this is brought on most recently, uh, by under the banner of heaven, that series over on FX and Hulu and, um, you know, different people's um, identifi- uh, identifiers calling it, you know, anti or, you know, other things. And I guess I let me boil down my question. My question is, is what do you consider anti or do you feel like that there is a lot of like anti-Mormon, anti-LDS literature out there? Or do we sort of broad brush paint a lot of things anti that that aren't, in fact, anti? Oh, I think we do do that broad brush too much. I mean, uh, um, there is anti-Mormon stuff out there, you know, published by the Southern Baptist Convention and so on. It's overtly attacks on our truth claims. But most of these things are just from people like under the banner of heaven. Um, most of the people involved in it, I think, probably just think we're a really weird subculture. They don't understand this overly well. I don't know that they respect us a huge amount. But, mm-hmm. But they're not motivated by hostility. They just think we're weird and make an interesting story. And, you know, I've told people that I know they want to know how to react under the banner of heaven. I think, hey, it's maybe better to be thought weird and colorful than to be thought boring and bland. At least maybe there'll be some conversations about us. And then we should take the opportunity to join in Mm -hmm. uh, to those conversations. I'm not necessarily upset about that kind of coverage. Um, it, you know, and I can, I can mention cases. Carl G. Mazur was one of the founders of BYU. His first encounter with the church was reading a book about us. And his conclusion was nobody could be that wicked and that stupid. I've got to find out more. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so he ended up joining the church and founding the church educational system. Um, and I, I know of more than a few stories, something like that. Um, so, I'm not necessarily always upset about anti anti Mormon stuff, and I, you know, a lot of this I just wouldn't even count as anti Mormon. Just yeah. because people don't agree with us doesn't make them anti Mormon. Right. I don't agree with a lot of things. I, I'm not a Catholic. I'm not a Muslim, but I'm not anti Muslim or anti Catholic. I, but one of the differences is I don't spend a lot of my time out there attacking them, putting up websites, criticizing them, and so on and so forth. But if I were to say something. Like, well, I don't agree that the Pope is the leader of Christendom. That doesn't make me anti-Catholic. That just makes me non-Catholic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's an important distinction, and I knew that you'd be able to speak well to it, so I appreciate you taking a moment. I know that uh, we're going to venture into some um, projects that you've got coming up that I think are really exciting that are uh, pro-Mormon, pro LDS, Pro Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, if we want to be full title and appropriate as far as that goes. <laughs> But I think that it's worth at least that pause because I've seen enough chatter online and in social media groups where people are like, oh, that's anti. And I'm like, you are missing the point. There have been a few people who have reached out and said, yeah, but what about this part of this? And I say, isn't it exciting that now you get to learn if that's even true, first of all? And then second of all, along the way, you know, figure out why you don't think that that's true or what, you know, what was it about that particular thing that made you struggle so much so that you can have greater and stronger faith. Whereas if we just, you know, broad brush it as anti, we don't learn any of that from it. That's, that's exactly right. And, and I would give an example years ago, back in the forties, I guess, Fawn Brody published a famous biography of Joseph Smith called, uh, 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 no man knows my history. And uh, it was it was widely perceived as an attack on Joseph Smith. And in a way, it was. I mean, she, she was an ex-member of the church, a non-believer, trying to explain everything as the product of Joseph Smith and his environment and so on. So, you know, there were responses to the book. And I think very good ones. The book has serious, serious flaws. But she did us a favor in some ways. Um, by By being a pretty serious critic, she raised questions about, well, did Joseph Smith tell the first vision story early on? Was it a later invention? Well, we really hadn't thought about that much. And so there was a lot of research devoted to that because of her and a few other critics, where we found earlier accounts of the first vision and so on. Um, this is really a good thing. Our position is stronger and we understand things better because of some criticisms. Now, 
to be able to do that, you hope your critics will be halfway good. I mean, <laughs> I hear criticisms from some people where I think that's not even worth responding to. That's just so right. stupid, right. unless it's having an impact on people and just going to let it slide. But a good critic who sees problems uh, can sometimes be an occasion for us to up our game, <laughs> do a little better than we have done. And I think some of our better critics have done that for us. Um, it doesn't hurt us to... Um, to have to respond to well thought out criticisms or historical questions. A lot of times we've, some of our better historical work has come because somebody wanted to respond to a criticism that he hadn't thought of before. Yeah. I want to take a break real quick. When we come back, I want to get into the project that you've got going on. We'll come back and do that in the second block of the cultural hall. BestDJinUtah.com. That is the website if you would like to hire me to come and to be at your event. Now, uh, I've done weddings and uh, family reunions, and I've had the opportunity to gather with folks just uh, for a party. I have yet to do a funeral, uh, and so I I don't want to say it with such exuberance, but I'm willing to play the music at a funeral, and I know that some people have really started to turn uh, the passing of someone into a party. Not that we're celebrating that they're gone. No, that's not what I'm saying. Take that back. Come on, Richie. I'm just saying the opportunity to be able to gather and celebrate the life of an individual. This suddenly got really dark, and I didn't mean it to. The point is, if uh, you have an event, an activity that you need music to be played for, why not considering consider rather hiring me uh, you go to best dj in utah.com hey friends dan the laptop man from pc laptops as you know there's been a huge video card shortage for computers we have tons of nvidia and amd video cards right now available with complete systems check us out right now at pclaptops.com here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, encourage you to uh, head on over to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. It's how you can financially support the Cultural Hall. Think about it. With 600 plus episodes under our belt, you could start listening today at episode one, and we would join you again in about 14 days, 15 days almost, uh, and you would have to stay up all night, all day, and listen to every single episode that's how long it would take you to get through all of our back catalog. And you can get the back catalog if you are a Patreon saint. It's patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall for as little as five bucks a month. You can help us do this and you get to see the cool backdrop of uh, Daniel's blinds. It's almost if he opened his blinds, it would be a, a light almost to the brightness of the sun. I won't be sacrilege, but it would be nice and bright behind him. I appreciate that you didn't backlight yourself and that you're here with me to talk about what are we calling this project? No, we're calling it witnesses. Witnesses. That's I knew. Overall, I knew it. Yeah. It felt very aficionado. It's very firm. <laughs> uh, the witnesses of the Book of Mormon, and immediately yeah. I go, "Hang on, there's three and eight. Are 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 there more? Are we expanding it out beyond those that we see listed in the front pages of the we Book are of Mormon?" A little bit. Yeah, the, the, we started off this project with a film that came out last summer, the summer of 2021, simply called Witnesses. It was a dramatic film or a theatrical film, and it focused on Joseph Smith and the three witnesses. So Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, David Whitmer. Uh, you know, and it was hard enough to tell a story with four protagonists that goes on <laughs> in its core over a period of about oh, 10 years. So, you know, we thought, oh, we're not going to bring in the other witnesses and, and so on. We'll do that later. Actually, what we always intended to do was a docudrama. The theatrical film was a, was a kind of afterthought. But we decided it was a way to get a conversation going, we hoped. And now, so now the docudrama that we're calling Undaunted, colon, at least that's the way I do it with a colon, Undaunted <laughs> Witnesses of the Book of Mormon, um, is uh, is going to come out on the 24th. So, you know, as we're speaking, it's, what, a week away? Less than a week away, my friend. Yeah, and that'll come out on DVD. Um, and that is, um, it's a two-part Almost altogether, almost two and a half hour uh, docudrama, meaning it's got scenes from the witnesses film, but also scenes we filmed specifically for it about the eight witnesses and about the unofficial informal witnesses. I'll say something about them in just a minute, uh, but also interviews with scholars and a couple of them non-LDS. Hmm. Uh, we, we interview a, a retired federal judge, for example, who talks about the importance of eyewitness testimony in judicial proceedings, and uh, a retired federal prosecutor um, who addresses the same subject. Um, I, uh, he got involved 
this is my revenge on him. He dragged me into the Elizabeth Smart, Brian David Mitchell case hmm. uh, as a as an expert witness analyzing Brian David Mitchell's quote revelations end quote. So turnabout is fair play. I dragged him into my movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's a retired uh, U.S. attorney. And but we have a fellow that actually made makes plates. He's a metallurgist, metal worker. So he talks about what it takes to make plates. We have various historians, including non-LDS historians, talking about the witnesses and commenting on the scenes that uh, that we're showing. So I'm excited about that. Um, and uh, and then that's not all there is to the project. We've um, we've also got a series of short what we're calling reels. Uh-huh. Um, which are seven to roughly 12 minute uh, deep dives, if you will, uh, into specific subjects, like a little more on Oliver Cowdery, a little more on Sidney Rigdon, something about the Kinderhook plates, one about the James J. Strang and the so-called Boree plates, which were, uh, from my point of view, a pretend Book of Mormon, you know, to try to usurp the leadership of the church or the question of, you know, whether the witnesses ever denied their testimonies, things like that. And these are things we're trying to get out all over um, the social media at no cost. I mean, this isn't a money-making venture. Um, and so those things, and then we've done a website called um, Witnesses of the Book of Mormon, um, which I think will have an importance all its own. It's It's meant to support the films, but but it'll live on whether the films do anything or not. And it's a, uh, it's a place where ultimately I hope to have every still existing testimony of all of the witnesses, you know, the texts so that people can look at them. I mean, David Whitmer was interviewed. Well, he has the experience in 1828. He dies in 1888 for yeah. 60 years. He's bearing his testimony. And so we, I want to have all those interviews and all those testimonies online so that people can look at them and, understand how consistent these people were. Um, but you raised a question, I'm sorry to go on so long, but I'll, I'll just say, uh, yeah, we're extending it beyond not just the three and the eight, but to what I call the informal or uh, unofficial witnesses. And they are to me really interesting. I used to think, well, they're, they're just more, that's all there is. But now I realize, no, they're different too. Ooh, tell me, what, tell me what you mean. Cause yeah, well, I several, think, several I, are women. Mm-hmm. Which, and, which I think is pertinent because when we consider the three and the eight, they're all men. They're all men. And I've wondered why that was so. And I thought, well, we have to take the culture into, into consideration. Women were allowed to serve on juries at that period. In fact, there were some states in the Union where even into the 1950s, believe it or not, 1950s, women couldn't serve on juries. So a woman's testimony in the front of the Book of Mormon, I think culturally in the U.S. at that time or, or abroad, wouldn't have had much impact. There was no point. Um, but but the Lord didn't forget about them because some of the more interesting informal or unofficial witnesses are women. Mary Whitmer, um, Emma Smith, um, Catherine Smith, Salisbury, Joseph's younger sister, Lucy Max Smith, um, and even uh, even Lucy Harris had an encounter with the plates and the angel before she went really negative on everything. Um, and they're interesting for another reason, <clears throat> to my mind. Some people dismissed the three and the eight because they said, well, they were kind of primed for seeing something. Oh, I don't think that really explains them away. But in the case of the uh, the informal or unofficial witnesses, in many cases, they were caught by surprise. They weren't expecting anything. Mm-hmm. Josiah Stoll, for example, sees, um, sees the plates, just catches a glimpse of them as the cover falls off while Joseph's handing them to him through a window. Uh, and later testifies under oath in a trial. Someone says, well, you know, how do you know he had the plates? And he says, because I saw them. And I remember when I first saw that, I, I'm i sure I wasn't the first to notice it, but it stunned me. It was only relatively recently. And I thought, I had never known that Josiah Stoll claimed under legal oath in a trial to have seen the plates, but he did. But he wasn't expecting it. He wasn't primed for it. Or, sure. You know, Mary Whitmer famously was in a really rotten mood and wanting to kick Joseph and Oliver off her property. She was she was having to do all the work while they, you know, uh, translated the plates and, and then would take breaks by going off and skipping rocks on a pond. And she's well, they could help milk the cows or something. Um, so she was pretty mad. And then a messenger sh- shows up and says, and she may be the first witness besides the Smiths. He, he says, uh, 
you're under a lot of stress, aren't you? And she says, well, yeah, I am. He says, well, okay, it's only fair that you should have a glimpse of the plates and shows her the plates, which astonished her. But she wasn't prepped for that. She wasn't expecting it. She was out in the barn about to milk the cows and was in a really rotten mood. So it's not like she was in some spiritual ecstasy, you know. So, to me, so, that's good testimony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, people can argue against the other, right? It's a group of people and maybe they're like, oh, hey, we're all here. And you say this. Yeah, I'll say this too. Yeah, do you say yeah. this? Yeah. But to be able to have those unique and... um and not often shared experiences, I think is pretty vital. Questions I have about this, uh, about yeah. the actual project itself. So within the docudrama, is it, in my mind, this is what I've conjured up. So tell me, because I haven't seen it yet. Is it like Josiah Stoll flashes across the, the screen and then it tells about how he was able to see the plates and then another one of the witnesses' names flashes and then oh. it's like Mary Whitmer, okay, who, she, who is she and how did she come about it? Or what, what, yeah. what if I'm consuming this, what is it like for me? Well, we kind of tell a story and uh, and we allow the interviews with the scholars and the authorities to sort of drive it. Then we illustrate it or introduce those those scholars testimonies or the scholars uh, comments, I should say, with mm -hmm. with scenes that we've created. Uh, talking about the eight witnesses, for example, we have a scene of Hiram Page, who was beaten so badly that it crippled him for months and may have hastened his death. He died fairly young. He was one of the eight witnesses. And he was given a chance to deny his testimony by this mob that set on him. And uh, they just kept beating and beating him, and he wouldn't deny his testimony. This is long after he's, you know, he's kind of separated from the church. Um, and finally, one of the mobs says, come on, this, and I, it's a family podcast. So, but <laughs> he says with a kind of oath, this stupid blank blank, you know, he's, he's not going to say what we want him to say, even if we beat him to death. So let's leave him alone. Again, that's a strong testimony to me. Mm -hmm. It would have been easy to say at that point, oh, you know, I'm not really sure. I, I don't know what I saw. Yeah, maybe I did see something different. Good point. Good yeah. point. Yep. But he won't do it. And even at the what looked like uh, the price of being beaten to death. So uh, so we have a narrator. We use uh, Paul Wuthrich, who is the guy that played Joseph Smith in our theatrical film. Mm -hmm. And he just sort of talks us through and provides the the, the glue that holds the thing together. And we'll, we'll summon in people to talk to him, like the federal judge and the federal prosecutor and, and various scholars. He interviews them and, and, um, uh, and then they shed light on this or that. And then we move on to another subject. It's kind of arranged by subject, not just episode. Um, so I, I, I hope people will like it. So when you consider uh, the witnesses, both the formalized three and eight, and then these other um, sort of additional ones, these unique yeah. ones, maybe we call it. Uh, is there a particular um, individual's story, either post um, being a witness of the Book of Mormon or even during, you know, I think oftentimes, you know, like, because so often we consider like how Martin Harris, um, you know, he was not in the right spiritual, you know, sort of tone to be able to do it. Uh, so he had to go away and then he was able to see and witness the plates um, later, I, that to me is sort of a unique story and often gets sort of carried as a, you know, yeah, you got to make sure that you're in the right spiritual place be, as you are able to embark on these things. Is, is there another story, either one that you knew and you feel like needs more attention or something that came about as you were preparing this project of one of these witnesses, again, formalized or other, that you're like, that's a fascinating thing about that individual or or um, experience that that individual had as being a witness? Well, there's several things that I wanted to make sure we got into these movies or into the, into the reels, at least. And I know, for example, what I'm about to mention is definitely alluded to in the, in the reels, the short feature. One of my favorite arguments against the witnesses uh, that, that a critic uh, directed at me, oh gosh, 15, 20 years ago. I've never forgotten. It's the only place I've encountered. He said, look, David Whitmer would have told the truth about the Book of Mormon, but he was terrified of Brigham Young. He knew that if he ever told the sordid truth, Brigham would have him done in, you know. Mm. And, and I remember thinking, yeah, well, that doesn't make any sense because Brigham died in 1877. David died in 1888. He has 11 years where he can come clean, right? Yeah. But, but David is fierce about defending his testimony. At one point, somebody publishes an account uh, in one of the Missouri newspapers saying that he had denied his testimony in an interview with that guy. Mm -hmm. And David Whitmer goes to the leading officials of Richmond, Missouri, 
the mayor, the banker, the sheriff, you know, all those sorts of people and gets them to testify that he's in sound mind and a good character. He had been the mayor of Richmond, Missouri, by the way, which is amazing given his Latter-day Saint past mm-hmm. in Missouri in the yeah. 1800s. He was still chosen as mayor for a while. So they respected him and they want to know, why are you doing this? Why do you care about, you know, getting your reputation upheld? And he has them, he has them certify and sign a document, which we still have, by the way. And he says, because I'm going to publish something in response to John Murphy of Polo County, who said I denied my testimony. And he says, you know, if he did not understand me then, let him understand me now. (laughs) I have never denied my testimony. I saw what I saw, you know, and he goes on in that way. To me, that's powerful. But but even more powerful is is uh, when he dies. There's a there's a grave marker on his on his grave in Richmond, Missouri. It's a pillar of stone about I don't know three feet tall or something like that. And on top of it are carved two books, clearly meant to be the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And on the side of the pillar, it says, "The record of the Jews and the record of the Nephites are one. Truth is eternal." Hmm. Now, you know, this is David Whitmer, who never came back to the church. He never did. But was he insistent on his testimony? I look, in 1888, he's dead. Brigham Young cannot get him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Brigham's been dead for 11 years. He still bears his testimony, literally engraves it in stone. Um, so he's serious. Another one that's impressed me has been John Whitmer, um, who comes the closest to any of the witnesses to denying his testimony. And that's what interests me. Um, you know, he's excommunicated. It's a really bitter time in Missouri. The church leaves. He's still there. Uh, what does he get excommunicated for? Do we know? It, um, disagreement with church leadership. It was over financial matters, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, the leadership in Missouri was trying to sell LDS property there. Joseph told them not to do it, and they did anyway. That's part of the thing that, that causes the problem. Um and so he's really, really bitterly angry. He's mad at Joseph Smith. And let me say, by the way, it takes real daring on Joseph's part, if this is a fraud, to excommunicate these guys, because they're the ones who can you know, let the cat out of the bag. They can sure. go to the world. And yet he knows they won't. David says that the angel told him, if you ever deny your testimony, you will be damned. You know, so that incentive to, yeah. to to stick by what they knew to be true. You know, I mean, if you care about like the rest of your life and on and on and on, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you take that kind yeah. of stuff pretty serious. Well, a man by the name of Theodore Turley is sent back into Missouri. Boy, this is a mission call that would uh, that would scare you to death because mm-hmm. the saints are penniless trying to settle in in in, in uh, Illinois. And so Theodore Turley is sent into Missouri to try to sell the property there that the church owned now. Uh, pennies on the dollar just to get something to help the saints out and he runs into john whitmer and he says brother whitmer you were one of the witnesses to the book of mormon do you no longer believe it to be true and whitmer says oh i don't know if it's true or not he says i couldn't read what was on those plates and now that interests me because the three witnesses hear the voice of god they see an angel the eight witnesses just have this matter of fact experience they're in a grove, grove of trees uh, Joseph brings the plates in, they hold them, turn the turn the pages and so on. There's nothing miraculous, no divine certification of authenticity or anything like that. And so he bears testimony, though, to what he knows. He saw the plates. This is the time where he could have said, you know, there weren't any plates. I didn't really see anything. But he says, right. no, I, I saw them. I, I turned the pages. They had weird writing on them, but I don't know if it's translated correctly. And and but they weighed about he estimated about 60 pounds most of the estimates say about 40 to 60 um and uh, and then you know later on he he rebounds he's not in such a foul mood for the rest of his life he bears strong testimony to the book of mormon for the for the rest of his life until he dies but there at his lowest point he still says i saw the plates they had weird writing on them i turned the leaves of the plates and you know that's all i need him to say it's like, you know, if there's somebody that sees an accident on the street, I'm not interested in his opinions about um, Chevys versus Fords or you know, <laughs> Cadillacs or Lexuses or something like that. I care about what he saw. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's where John Whitman never wavers, never wavers. None of them ever do. And that's that's impressive to me. Um, and, uh, you know, learning more about the the unofficial or informal witnesses too has been really impressive to me. They're pretty strong. And tell, uh, tell me about one of those individuals. I mean, we've spoken already about one, but I would be curious about maybe someone else. It doesn't have to be 
I mean, I think anytime you would be able to witness the plates would be, you know, a grand experience. So I don't want to yeah. downplay it, but as you mentioned with Josiah Stoll, like, Oh, that slipped. Oh, I saw the plates. And you know, yeah. that's kind of a unique story. Are there other, is there another story about one of these not three or not eight witnesses that, that people yeah. would find kind of curious that's depicted? Well, there are several. There's one, for example, where Catherine Smith, later Catherine Smith Salisbury, uh, Joseph hands the plates to her. He's run in from the forest. He's been pursued by a mob. He thinks they're going to come after him right into the cabin. So he gives them to Catherine and she takes them from him. And, and she comments later on multiple times, they were really heavy. Um, and But she goes in, she puts them under the covers on the bed, and then she climbs into the bed and pretends to be asleep. Well, the, the mob doesn't search the bedroom, right? Because, you know, it'd be indecorous in the early 19th century to invade the bedroom of a young girl. They don't do it. She's got the plates with her there under the covers, mm -hmm. pretending to be asleep. And it's just testimonies like hers talk about the materiality of the plates. They weren't imaginary. This wasn't something in Joseph's imagination. Um, people comment all the time that they're really, really heavy. In fact, there's a line that I love, and we put it in the witnesses' film. Um, from Martin Harris, um, where he says, he says about the plates, he said, I knew from their weight that they weren't wood or a rock. They were either lead or gold because lead and gold are both exceptionally heavy, mm -hmm. which meant whatever was in that box, this is before he's a witness, was really dense. He could tell it wasn't just a rock. And, and he says, and I knew that Joseph didn't have enough cred credit to get that much lead. <laughs> now, I think that's really funny because he concludes Joseph couldn't afford lead, so it's got to be gold. Got to be Joseph gold. <laughs> couldn't afford gold either, but I mean, there is a story for how Joseph got the gold, um, you know, given to him by an angel. Mm -hmm. And so that line, I think, is is funny. You know, Joseph, I, it's either lead or gold, and I know you don't have enough money to get that much lead. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, I want to take another break real quick. When we come back, I want to ask you um, about kind of uh, who this is for. Maybe yeah. who it isn't for, and we'll get into some other things. Plus, we ask three questions of everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I'll do that coming back in the third block. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, I encourage you to uh, send us an email if you love this episode. Contact at theculturalhall.com and say, you know what? I love Daniel Peterson. Thank you for having him into the Cultural Hall. Or if you don't want to do that, you can uh, get the link to this episode and send it to your friend and say something like, you'll love this episode of Daniel Peterson in the Cultural Hall. A great way for you to either interact and let us know what you think about the episodes that we do or be able to share us with your friends, which we take as one of the greatest compliments, right? Time is a limited resource. And we know that if you're going to spend our, your time with us, we take that very seriously. And especially if you recommend us to someone else, uh, we know that it's worthwhile. So take a second. If uh, you've enjoyed this episode, uh, sure, it's not done yet, but you know, send this along to someone else. You can tell it's going to be great. The end. We're pushing to the end. Daniel. About a year ago, uh, we had Lincoln Hoppe, Paul Kander, Kand Kandarian, and Michael right. Zakola, uh, three of the actors from Witnesses here in the Cultural Hall. People can find a link to that in the uh, show notes. It's episode number 527. Uh, that is the, the motion picture uh, that you have been sort of referencing within this. And you can get some of the behind the scenes things because uh, I know Lincoln, uh, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but the other two, not. And you get to I, hear their sort of interaction with finding out about who these, and for the sake of this, I'll say characters, who these people are, and being able to portray them and the, and the very special things that they saw. Uh, what, what is it about these witnesses that, that drives you? This is a far cry from Arabic and, and Middle Eastern studies. What is it about, about these people and their stories that, that makes you go, yeah, I guess I'll be a, a Hollywood mogul. And now we're going to push a witnesses project. 
Right. Yeah, well, I have I have long found the witnesses really compelling. I mean, when I was fairly young, I read a book by a scholar. I still consider him one of the greatest scholars in the history of the church, Richard Lloyd Anderson, who passed away just two or three years ago. Um, and Richard was the authority by far on the witnesses. Um, and I read a book by him. I still consider it one of the great books ever written in the Latter-day Saint tradition. It's called Investigating the Book of Mormon Witnesses investigating the Book of Mormon Witnesses by Richard Lloyd Anderson, in which he looked very carefully at them. And they emerged from it as, um, as honest, sane, responsible, respected people. And it's really hard, to my mind, to get around them. And I would put it this way, as one way I've thought of putting it, which is, look, I've talked for a long time. I, I give firesides and so on on evidences for the Book of Mormon. Uh, the Book of Mormon from a, you know, it's a Middle Eastern book set in the Americas, but with a Middle Eastern culture. There are a lot of things about it that point to that Middle Eastern cultural background. But the only secular evidence, if you will, that the Lord himself has given us, I mean, apart from what I consider the spiritual evidence of a spiritual witness, testimonies, Moroni 10, mm-hmm. um, is the witnesses. They're mentioned in the Book of Mormon itself. They're mentioned in the Doctrine and Covenants, their testimonies appear in every edition of the Book of Mormon, as far as I know, since 1830 in every language. Um, he obviously sees them as important, mm-hmm. and, and I think so should we. So I wanted to tell that story. I began hearing even members of the church say things like, well, I found out that you know they never claimed to actually see anything with their real eyes, it was just spiritually or in their imagination, or they never claimed to touch anything. That's not true. In order to believe that, you've got to toss out what they said. And they said it a lot. Uh, just this morning, I brought across someone saying, well, Martin Harris never claimed to actually see anything with his real eyes. I could give you, in fact, this is kind of a signature of Martin Harris in a way. It's kind of his style. There are accounts from, I don't know, maybe at least a dozen people from later in his life when he was living in Cache Valley, the only one of the witnesses who came to Utah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a pageant about him, the man who is. knew. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And his tomb, his grave is out there in Clarkston to the west of Logan. And and I actually went out there once. And I don't normally try to commune with the dead, but I remember thinking to myself, Martin, I hope we're doing you justice. Hmm. You know? <laughs> hope you're listening and I hope yeah. you're gonna be pleased with what we're doing. Yeah. But um, you know, but he had a he had a little verbal formula that he'd use and he used it all the time. He'd say, Do you see that tree over there? Yeah. Okay, as clearly as you see that tree, I saw the angel. I saw the plate. So do you see this sun in the sky? Yes, I do. As clearly as you see that sun. You know, he was making the point as clearly as he knew how to do it, that he saw with his eyes. This wasn't imagination. He wasn't fantasizing. And the others all stressed that too. So I think that they're awfully hard to get around. I mean, by the time you have the 11 witnesses with Joseph Smith, you got 12. I'm not sure that's coincidental. That's the number of a jury. Twelve jurors can send a person to the gallows, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is pretty powerful stuff. Um, and uh, they're consistent in their testimony. How many, uh, including, obviously, the 11, right? And then Joseph Smith is 12. Yeah. Uh, but then we talk about these other sort of happenstance yeah. uh, witnesses. How many do you know uh, in totality? You know, I would say there are at least six. So bringing the total up to about 18, mm-hmm. that's a pretty good number Sure, um, in small town upstate New York in the late 1820s um, of people who are willing to testify that they'd seen. Um, there may be others that I'm unaware of. As I say, I, I didn't know about Josiah Stoll until a few years ago, and I'm not going to publicly disclose it now, but I think I've heard of another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he never joined the church, but he's a famous name in American history. Uh, I mean, relatively famous, and his name is still current. People will see it on a certain business house. I'm not going to publish this. I am going to write it up and eventually with a friend. And Because he went by uh, the Smith home when nobody else was home. Lucy Mack Smith was there, and he said, can I see the plates? And she said, no. And, um, and he says, well, can I hold them? And she's, well, okay, maybe. And she goes and gets them and brings them out, covered in a cloth or in a box. I don't remember which. And he comments how heavy they were and so on. Now, he didn't see them, but it still is a witness by a prominent man who goes on to become a sort of titan of American business uh, in the 19th century, and his company is still around. Hmm. Um, and, uh, 
and he's testifying, look, I don't know what they were, but they were heavy and, and he wasn't just hallucinating. I mean, it's either fraud or something, but he's really got a material object that really weighs a lot. Now, and, so I'm, so I'm curious and, and hopefully you are, um, a person that will understand this parable. I call it the parable of mash. So follow me here. Uh, because this is a defense that I've heard from a few people. Uh, MASH, the television show, the one that the last episode most viewed of any other television show ever and will be always the case. There's an episode of MASH where there's uh, a guy that they invent called Captain Tuttle. Are you familiar with the show and obviously the episode? Yeah, I think so. So so Captain Tuttle is, is someone who... Um, they sort of create for the purposes, not only comedic purposes of the show, but so everyone um, that c- kind of helps create him perpetuates him and be like, oh, yeah, you know, I had breakfast with him this morning. And then other people who had never met because this person didn't exist started right. owning up to the fact that it's like, oh, yeah, I just saw him. He was over in the mess tent or he was, you know, yeah. over here and whatever. I have heard that uh, as a as a, you know, kind of a an attack on the church that, yeah. that maybe there was something that, um, that, that these various, um, individuals who swore to, to be witnesses, you know, listen, if anyone falls out of line, we'll essentially come after you as a collective whole, you stick yeah. to the story because that's what the story is. I mean, I guess there's no way that we would ever really know that, but is right. that, but I mean, is there anything to that? I, I don't ever know what to say when people say stuff like that, except like, I don't believe that. And probably not. Don't you think? Yeah. I, you know, I think that it would be very difficult to imagine that that happened because, uh, um, for example, um, Martin Harris, uh, Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer were, were friends. Martin <laughs> Harris was kind of the odd man out. He was 20 years older. He didn't really know the others that well. And they see, even with the three witnesses, there are two separate experiences of seeing the angel and the plates and hearing mm-hmm. the voice of God and everything. And, and then the eight witnesses are totally distinct. And there's even one source, I don't know if it's true or not, but there's even one source that suggests that they saw the plates in two different groups. Mm. Usually we see eight altogether, but there's one source, maybe wrong, that claims there are two groups of four. So there you've got Joseph having to put on the show at least four different times for the official witnesses. And then with the unofficial witnesses, they're all individual. They don't see it collectively at all. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, Lucy Mac Smith's experience with the plates and especially with the Urim and Thummim and the breastplate are, those experiences are separate. Um, William Smith, uh, Catherine Smith, Lucy Harris, they're all individuals on separate occasions, not primed for it at all. Um, and so I find it very difficult to imagine how they would have all mutually reinforced that themselves. And, and Martin Harris is nowhere near uh, David Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery. And Oliver Cowdery is mostly off by himself. I mean, they're not around each other. The Whitmer family were. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but they kind of all lived together in Richmond, Missouri, and, and so on, founded a little kind of church of their own based on the Bible and the Book of Mormon. But the others are off you know, David, uh, I mean, excuse me, Martin is in Kirtland much of the time, or sometimes in Palmyra. Oliver's in another part of Ohio. Um, and they're just not near each other. Uh, so I don't know how they'd reinforce each other. And remember, gosh, they keep this together. In in, uh, in David Whitmer's case, he's excommunicated in the late 1830s. He dies in 1888. That's half a century where he's out of the church. And he's the <laughs> last one living for the last 10 or 15 years at least. Um, I just don't see the let's egg each other on sort of thing. And he's given yeah. lots of opportunities to back away. It is said sometimes that he was, um, he got sick of it. You see this in the film. We depicted it fairly well. Paul Kandarian played him really well. Mm-hmm. Sort of a crotchety, grumpy old guy. Who, you know, leave me alone. That sort of thing. Well, apparently he would be interrupted several times daily, month after month, year after year, by people who wanted to talk to him about the Book of Mormon. And many times just to mock him. Yeah, they weren't serious, and so he got to the point where he just wanted them to go away. But they repeatedly say that when they got him to talk, then he'd warm up and he'd bear a really strong testimony. But you have these scenes that they describe of someone saying to him, "Well, Mister Whitmer, it was yeah maybe a long ways off in the distance. You didn't see very clearly. Uh, could you have been deceived?" And he slams his fist down on the table and says, "Young man, 
the angel was closer to me than you are. I was not deceived. I know what I saw. I mean, mm -hmm. he's fierce about it. And this is without any reinforcement from anybody else. Is this project mainly for members of the church who just want to be strengthened or reaffirmed? Or do you feel like there's a uh, a uh, outreach sort of I, I would of hope that, you know, and I, I'm realistic. I know that non-Latter-day Saints are not likely to flock. They didn't flock to the theaters, though some did. Mm -hmm. We had a showing in Boston. Several of our actors, Paul Kandarian, for example, and, and uh, Michael Zucola were from Boston and a couple of others, actually. And we did some filming in Old Sturbridge Village outside Boston. So we had at their request a, a showing in Boston, one of the major theaters downtown in Boston. The audience was mostly LDS, mm -hmm. uh, non-LDS, excuse me. And the audience was mostly non-LDS. And I wasn't there for that one, but people who were said they were enthusiastic hmm. and had lots of questions. This was a special showing. So we had the one of the producers and so on there to answer questions and several of the actors and they ate it up. They enjoyed it. So I'm hoping that some non-Latter-day Saints will see it. And now it's it's streaming not only through Deseret Video Plus and um, and Living Scripture, but also on Amazon and, and uh, oh gosh, where else? Google and... Um, someplace else that escapes me right now. I'm sorry <laughs> about that. But I'm hoping that at least once in a while, somebody will stumble across it and think, well, what is this? And, and that it will, well, as I've said to some wavering Latter-day Saints, it'll create some doubts about their doubts. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the case of non-Latter-day Saints, I'm hoping it will maybe make them wonder, well, I wonder what the story behind this is. And I, I say that on the basis of some personal experience. My, my father was non-Latter-day Saint. Well, you know, all of my growing up mm -hmm. and uh, never took it very seriously. My mother was a marginal Latter-day Saint at best um, at that time. And my father later on, uh, there are several factors, but one thing was about the time I went on my mission, he began reading some books by Hugh Nibley because I had them. Mm -hmm. And he said that the one of the crucial moments for him was when it suddenly occurred to him, my word, could this possibly be true? You know, and it never really entered his mind before. It just all seemed so fantastic and absurd. But once, once it enters your mind that this might actually be true, those witnesses might be telling the truth. Well, then the window is open for some further development. You know, if the missionaries drop by or church members who are friends yeah. invite you over or something. So I, I'd hope that it would have some of that impact. It certainly is not aimed only at Latter-day Saints. Um, yeah. Tell me, tell me again, and I'll put it in the show notes. Where can people find it? Um, I know there's not only the docudrama, but also the website. Um, so let, let's run that down again. Again, I'll put it in the show notes. And then I've yeah. got three questions that I ask everyone who steps in the control. Okay. Okay. And I can take the fifth, right? Nope. Uh, so, <laughs> okay. This is not a court of law. You do not get to plead the fifth on those three questions. But where can people well, find this project? One place they can go to is the is the website Witnesses Film, Witnesses Plural, WitnessesFilm.com. That will take them to the reels, the short features, and it will give them some further information. Uh, they can find the Witnesses Film already uh, in Deseret bookstores, uh, online at Deseret Video, uh, online at Living Scriptures, and as I say, Amazon and Google and someplace else, whatever it is. I should have looked it up and I can't remember. <laughs> that other one, they're, they're very good. We love them. We can't remember yeah. their name right now. No, that's they really are the very best. good. They are, they, they, <laughs> yeah, that's the best place, but there's some other sources as well. So, uh, and you can find a lot of the stuff and the background information at the interpreter website itself, which is interpreterfoundation, all one word.org, interpreterfoundation.org. And then we have this witness, this website that we're calling Witnesses of the Book of Mormon, all one long word, <laughs> Witnesses of the Book of Mormon.org. And you can look at the reels there and find more information, background information about the reels. There's actually an undaunted witnesses website as well for the for the new docudrama that will be available on DVD in Deseret bookstores. As I speak, it's not, but in the next few days, maybe by the time this goes up, it will be. Um, and and then we have plans to stream that too. Um, but we're going to give Deseret Book a decent interval to sell a few DVDs before we stomp on their sales. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and make it widely streamable. Uh, right. Daniel, there, there are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I'll ask those of you right now. The first question is, is do you have a calling? And if so, what is it? <laughs> you know, you asked me at a really funny uh, time. I've been a bishop. I've been a gospel doctrine teacher almost all my life. But right at the moment, I don't. 
Good for you. Yeah. Enjoy it because it's not going to last. It's not going to last. <laughs> They'll get you, especially I, I, when they listen to this. Oh, I know. I, I shouldn't have said it. Shouldn't have admitted it publicly because I seem to have vanished, you know, off somebody's radar screen. What happened is uh, uh, somebody called me from the stake presidency a while ago and, and we staff a, a single stake. And mm-hmm. he said, are you seeking a calling? And to which my response was no. Um, I'd just been released from gospel doctrine teacher. And I said, no. And I think he took that to mean I wouldn't accept one. That's not what I meant. I meant <laughs> You're just like, no, I'm not seeking one out. Yeah, I don't campaign for callings. I just don't. I, I, you know, I'd accept one if it's extended to me. But anyway, nobody's called back since then. And I thought, <laughs> wow, what did I do? Yeah. Um, uh, so. That actually leads pretty well into the next question, which is if you could pick a calling, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Uh, I love being gospel doctrine teacher. That's my favorite calling in the church by far. I really, really love it. And, I, you know, I've served on high councils and as a bishop and things like a council and bishoprics. I think as a bishop, well, the church was lucky to survive. I, <laughs> I, you know, I don't think I was a great bishop, but I tried. I don't think I destroyed anything. Well, uh, listen, the church got what they paid for with the bishop, which is they, <laughs> didn't, have, they didn't pay anything. You know, and I'll tell you a story. Uh, I hope he's not listening. I'm sure he's not. Uh, there was a kid that came in to me once. He had some real issues, and we worked through them over multiple meetings. And finally, I said to him, well, you know, I think I can say on behalf of the church, and, and if I dare, on behalf of the Lord, that I think you're good to go. You've done what I asked you to do, and, and I think you're set. And he, and he said, well, I'm sorry to have been so much trouble. And I said, oh, don't worry. That's why they pay me the big bucks. And then he said, yeah, I've always been meaning to ask, how much do they pay you to be a bishop? You've got to be kidding. Really? And, <laughs> and I said, look, they don't pay me a nickel. And I said, and, and here's the thing. I'll do this for free, but I would never do it for money. Yeah. <laughs> you no. know? You offered me the job, not a chance. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's like some of these, uh, like the summer sales selling pest control or you know, those kind of things. It's essentially tracting without the spirit. And I did it on a mission, but I would never do it again. Same kind of thing. (laughs) Um, The last question we ask you, uh, we ask you to interpret it however you may. Um, But the question is this, what is your favorite part of your faith? Oh boy, that's a hard one. There's so many things I love about, about the gospel about the church. Um, I love, can I try a scatter shot of a few sure. just real quickly? Let's do it. Uh, one thing I love about growing up in California where there weren't that many of us, but I had a lot of friends who went to other churches and they would choose the church for, in one case, I remember they chose it because it was kind of a posh church and they wanted to be associated with it. They were really at the bottom rung of the economic ladder in that congregation, but well, it felt good to associate with the rich. And uh, there are others who go because they have a charismatic pastor or something like that. I like the fact that we're thrown into a ward, and I'm not saying by this that I don't like my ward, but that we're thrown in with people that we might or might not choose to be friends. Mm-hmm. It's just whoever lives within the ward, and you learn to form a community with them, and I think that's a great thing. I really love that. Yeah. Um, we don't shop around until we get the bishop we want or you know something like that, that we... Uh, we go and we we live with the saints, and they might be of your educational or you know economic level, or they might not. They might be way above you or way below you. Um, but the idea that some people, well, I've been in wards where we had extremely rich people, but they would show up at the welfare cantering, you know, they mm-hmm. would do their home teaching. I remember one of them was worth a huge amount of money. I mean, astronomical amount of money. Uh, came out of tithing settlement just before I went in. And I remember thinking to myself, why am I even bothering? Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> compared to what this person has just paid. You know, the church doesn't even notice my little pittance, but, but it was good. It's good to associate with people who are unlike us, I think. And, mm-hmm. but there are other things. I love the fact that in the gospel, um, everybody who ever lived will have a chance. So people aren't condemned because they didn't hear the gospel because they lived before the church was restored. And that the Lord loves everyone, and we have a chance to serve all of them. I, I had an experience once years ago going to the Soviet Union back when it was the Soviet Union. And we did a tour of one of the old prison camps, uh, <laughs> pre-Soviet. But but I knew the Soviets were, were far worse. And 
And it occurred to me, when my father was involved in the liberation of a Nazi concentration camp in Austria, wow. I grew up with stories about that. And, and you know, it was a traumatic event for him. I thought, okay, one of the things of the, of the um, 20th century was this attempt on an industrial scale to eliminate people, to make it as if they'd never existed by the millions, send them to labor camps, extermination camps, and just erase them, <laughs> make them non-persons. And along comes the gospel, and its goal is, with temple work and family history work, to remember every single person who ever lived. To me, that's, it's light and dark. It's such yeah. a dramatic contrast to the ideologies of the 20th century. The devil devalues people and wants to make them as if they didn't exist. The Lord values people infinitely, each one individually. And so you don't do temple ordinances or baptisms and mass. You do them individually. Yeah, one by one. I love yeah. that. I love that. Uh, well, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Wandering Wheaton's Ranch, Rick McGee, Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast, Debbie Wanless, Chris at AlpineLakesTravel.com, and Miracles, I told you so, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat on the back row. Show.